0: Why don't you guys go
1: ahead and introduce yourself?
2: My name is Mark Bergen. I'm a reporter with Bloomberg and the author of a new book, uh, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination.
0: Uh, I'm Claire Stapleton, and I worked at Google from 2007 to 2019. Uh, I was a marketing manager there at Google and YouTube, uh, and I um, was the co-organizer of the 2018 Google Walkout, um, and I subsequently left the company, and now I write a newsletter about uh, being a formerly disillusioned tech worker.
1: I brought Mark and Claire on the show this week to talk about YouTube. Mark's fascinating new book about the company is out this week and Claire was one of his sources. Little teenage girls will bow before me. One key story in the book, a story that says a lot about YouTube as a platform, unfolded in 2017. They will buy all my merchandise. They will click like on all my videos. You're hearing the voice of PewDiePie, AKA Felix Gelberg, YouTube's number one creator, what you can't see is that he's interspersed his video with images of Nazi salutes. It was an in-your-face response to accusations that he was flirting with white supremacy, and a story in the Wall Street Journal about anti-Semitism on his YouTube channel, something Gilberg said he did as boundary-pushing satire. YouTube never figured its biggest star would be beloved by neo-Nazis.
2: It was right after Trump had sent out a, a letter about the Holocaust Day, and it didn't mention Jews. And then there was a lot of uh, conversation then about the significance of that and how that was being received in the far right. And there was a Wall Street Journal reporter that went and, and looked at the Daily Stormer, which is the neo-Nazi website, and then saw at the top, oh, this website, neo-Nazi website, has the world's biggest YouTuber. And it says, number one PewDiePie fan. Uh, and that's how the story began. And, and then you notice that this the site had flagged a lot of videos and that they they saw it were sort of coded fascism and supporting their message. So at the time, uh, PewDiePie had been since 2012 the most subscribed YouTuber. Uh, at that point, he was close to 50 million. Um, this star that was beyond something that the, the company had ever really conceived. I, like certainly, when they they invented this concept of subscribers, they didn't think of it going that that large. Uh, and he was incredibly commercially successful in this sort of new form of performance art and new media and this vanguard of what YouTube saw as sort of transforming uh, Hollywood and entertainment. Uh, and he was also this, even then, this great example of this star that they couldn't control and, and often pushed the boundaries of, of respectability uh, and did things that I think made people in the company uh, certainly, cringe, and, and some of them pretty uncomfortable. But up until that point, it had never gone that that far.
1: Claire, one of the things that comes across in the book is that you were very uncomfortable with PewDiePie and and pushed back. And I wonder, was anyone listening to you when you saw him and and his rise to fame?
0: What did you think? Well, I think, you know, what was really awkward was that my job was basically values marketing. I was monitoring the conversation around YouTube. We were trying to steer clear of anything that uh, could attract negative brand attention and what we, what we put out and promoted every single day. Um, and I also worked on marketing campaigns that were around International Women's Day or Pride or, you know, all these different things. I was being told we need to be out there as a brand, like, Patagonia or Teen Vogue, you know, we need to be, you know, standing up in the Trump era for the things we care about. So, you know, my discomfort with PewDiePie's content was almost secondary to saying, hello, this is a huge contradiction here. I was just trying to get clarity and trying to get the leadership to take a look at what was an existential tension.
1: Today on the show, a remarkable look inside YouTube. How the company created a new kind of algorithm-driven entertainment the darkness that unleashed, and how, despite it all, YouTube manages to fly under the radar, even as regulators are breathing down Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok's necks. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TVD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. There's so much video on YouTube now that it's almost hard to remember that the company only started in 2005. Google bought it in 2006. The sheer amount of content on YouTube virtually guarantees that no one person's experience is the same. You might use it for tutorials about how to fix a sink or do your makeup. Your neighbor might be watching PewDiePie. Your spouse could be sharing old clips of Saturday Night Live sketches. The company says 500 hours of video are uploaded every minute.
2: I mean, there are, I think the stat, um, it's something like on the order of 5,000 creators in the U.S. with a million plus subscribers. Um, so not only it, you know, that is, there's a huge demand since 2016, there's been a billion hours watched every, every day. And and now there's also this a, a, a gigantic economy that they created of people whose uh, livelihoods and, and professional lives are are on YouTube as well.
1: How does the split break down between video from creators or kind of more organic video versus things like clips from major TV networks?
2: is Susan Wojcicki has said that it was about half what what YouTube calls the CEO. um yes sorry the CEO of YouTube uh and they call them endemic creators which I think is a hilarious term so there's record labels or traditional media there's Jimmy Kimmel you know John Oliver like they are uh as certainly um in the past few years have been a, a bigger part of YouTube's business because they've had to adjust the dials for the endemic creators to avoid kind of brand advertising catastrophes um It's unclear. Like, you know, YouTube came out last year and said, we've given $30 billion to creators and you you can impress them. Like, oh, how much of that actually goes to, you know, independent YouTubers, what we think of as as a creator versus how much of that went to Taylor Swift's record label? And they don't have a clear answer for that.
1: One of the things that sets YouTube apart from other places on the internet um, is how they pay creators. And I wonder, Mark, if you could walk me through that and explain why that is important.
2: Yeah, so they were really early. It was 2007 when they started uh, what's called the Partner Program, which was just sharing revenue with, at that point, it was about 30 uh, popular creators, um, some of which are still around. Uh, Phil DeFranco is a a YouTuber that has an audience, probably like he does a daily news show, probably on par with like CNN. What's up, you beautiful bastards? Hope you're
0: having a fantastic Wednesday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show, and let's just jump into this.
2: So these incredibly influential who are like in, in youth culture and YouTube culture, um, that at the onset, it was, they kept it relatively limited. And then around 2011, 2012, they opened up the floodgates. And it was a very naive, uh, very googly vision of the world. It's sort of, you know, Google has the same system for bloggers. They have this product called AdSense. And so if you start up a blog, you can kind of pretty easily run banner ads and, and and monetize, it's the same sort of logic and system for YouTube. Uh, this massive self-governing that had millions of creators uh, then making money and, and with very few rules in place. It was basically don't break copyright rules, don't break graphic violence, don't put up porn, everything else is fair game, both to, to run on YouTube and then to run ads and share money with Google.
1: What truly powers YouTube What has helped it hook viewers is its recommendation algorithm, that little section on the right side of your screen that suggests another video and then another and another.
2: That initially was a pretty rudimentary recommendation system. It wasn't until really 2014, 2015 Uh, When it became, and and YouTube at the time, it's kind of remarkable, went out and and talked about this as like this sort of uh, fantastic recommendation system that can, and still to this day, provide people kind of exactly the kind of, you know, optimized to feed you a video that you're most likely going to click on and watch the full length of the clip.
1: Claire, did anyone at YouTube realize the other side of that coin? Even in prepping this show, my producers um algorithmic suggestions, after pulling a number of pewdiepie clips or other clips, started pushing him into frankly, misogynist content or things that got darker and darker
0: i don't I don't think people talk about it enough because the algorithm is YouTube. The system is so totalizing there that all these other measures to mitigate harm are at the margins, essentially hmm. because the as Mark described how the system is set up around ads, that means it's around clicks and eyeballs. Um, the main metrics that YouTube uh, you know, holds itself to every year are, are pretty much all about growth and all about you know, bringing billions and billions of eyeballs and views into the site. Um, and you can't mess with that too much. The, the algorithm is incredibly adept at optimizing clicks, watch time, um, keeping people on the site as long as possible. So unless you fundamentally change those goals or fundamentally change the way the entire internet system works, how can you address that ultimately you're leading people to rabbit holes and you know, getting deeper and deeper into um, you know, content that can be radicalizing?
1: And, and the object here is watch time, right? It's not just clicks, but it's keeping me on the site for as long as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it, 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 you know, logically makes sense that, you know, the, the more people form community or connect with creators, the deeper they get into. I mean, I think this is why someone like Jordan Peterson is so popular because he offers, it's almost like a a self-help parasocial dad connection and, um, you know, there's, there's so many different, you know, kinds of content that bridge off of that. The f- further you get into that worldview, uh, the more time you're likely to spend in a place like YouTube, the, the more connections you're, you're going to feel with other people on the site. It's too good for the bottom line to resist, really. YouTube
1: now has a section called YouTube Kids, which was launched in 2015. It gives parents a series of controls to limit what their kids can see. But the company wasn't always so deliberate when it came to what children could find. In fact, it resisted it for years. I'm thinking about kids. I'm thinking about YouTube being the preferred social media network, at least in 2018, for for kids ages 13 to 17. TikTok has now taken that mantle, but, Mark, there was a lot of deliberation within the company about kids, and maybe a better way to say it is looking the other way, because kids under 13 weren't supposed to be on YouTube Considering how impressionable kids are and how likely they are to keep clicking, how was that conversation unfolding internally about what the algorithm was serving children?
2: That was, I think, one of the most profound sort of wake-up moments. And actually, even earlier than than we think of sort of when a lot a lot changed for YouTube starting in 2018, but but back even a decade ago, we saw this explosion of of kids' material that had Hadn't existed before, uh, and a lot of it was toy unboxing. Hey guys, Disney Collector here with this brand new package from Disney Infinity. This is from the movie Frozen, and it comes with Anna and Elsa. Let's open here. It was just massive. Like at one point, it was the most popular channel in, in uh, all of YouTube. Was this anonymous uh, called Disney Collector VR uh, that just did it, toy unboxing, and at that time, you know they were. I think it's important to remember that people working at the company in leadership positions were just having young kids, I think having this reckoning. Uh, and personally, they tried something, uh, this early system they called nutritious and delicious. And so they they attempted to basically uh, program quality a- into the algorithm. And I go into this in the book a little bit. That was dropped. Uh, they kind of picked up the pieces later on after some crises, in part because, You know, YouTube and Google just has this very uh, sort of built into their DNA, this resistance to do any like heavy handed editorializing. Hmm. Uh, And they didn't want to dictate, you know, what was kids content, what's quality, right? Like, who are we to determine what's quality? Who are we to determine what's kids content? And then the major issue there was, as you mentioned, there's COPPA, which is the, the law that you can't serve you know, targeted advertising to children under under thirteen. Under thirteen, right? So YouTube was found guilty of violating that, and arguably, I think the most uh, effective U.S. regulation of a big tech company was when the FTC fined YouTube in 2019. And kids' content has has changed pretty dramatically on the platform since.
1: Claire, what level of awareness was there within the platform about young children? using it and and how few clicks away something that maybe looks like a kids video but gets really dark really fast
0: it's- yeah i think that there was there was a the recognition of that and that's why they put so much into the youtube kids app um which was an, an environment that they could you know cordon off and you know have have more moderation around the videos i think it is an area where they have had to take seriously because of, of, of both press attention and then actual regulation. Um, but again, it's an absolutely huge segment of YouTube usage. Um, it's a wild creative jungle of stuff. I mean, it's the, the kid vloggers, the family vlogging, um, you know, it, it, it we're we're having a window into how people or what people want to see and and how how people are consuming content in this next generation, and it's terrifying, frankly. When we come back,
1: advertisers are not fans of having their products next to questionable content, and guess what? YouTube is full of Mark. The flip side of being the place that everyone can upload their content is the kind of awful, dark stuff that gets up there that we have hinted at. Hate speech, terrorism. How and when did the company start thinking about policing that?
2: I think fairly early. Google acquired them about 18 months into their existence. But they'd hired uh, a a, a team that had worked and experienced... um, in, you know, either was just kind of web culture uh and and a lot of the like early internet and the, the EFF and these groups that were
1: the electronic frontier foundation.
2: Yeah, thank you. Like very much saw the internet as this frontier against government censorship and against big companies. Um and so they put in place where a system that a content moderation didn't really exist. They were sort of inventing it on the fly. Um, and so the, the rules were were very lax. Uh, but they did have things in place about uh, hate speech, about uh, harassment. Um, you know, this was—I I think these are obviously very subjective terms. YouTube now would like to prefer them to be uh, not there, written the code. Uh, but at the time, I think people at YouTube thought, that of course, these are subjective, and these are like this is our community, this is our website. Uh, we're going to enforce that in in ways that we 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 want to, right? Like, it, it it's certainly miles away, flight years away from from where we are today of this idea of like a platform has to be fully neutral.
1: But of course, once you start selling ads to multinational corporations, they get very nervous about what those ads are next to, whether that content is sexual or offensive or just really weird.
2: Around 2012 is when they sort of opened up the, the floodgates. Anyone can make money at the same time. They, they switched their algorithm to watch time and you saw this tremendous growth. Uh, the leadership there at YouTube was saying, we want to tackle television. You know, TV has four to five hours a day. At this point, YouTube had like five to seven minutes of, of daily viewing like, of people's attention, of people's attention. Right. It was sort of you get in, in uh, bathroom breaks or something or like, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't what it what it was today. I've talked to a lot of people who were at the time like, you know, hindsight's 2020, 20, like when they're measuring watch time. Right. They didn't see how many times people are like violated the rules or come close to the rules. YouTube has said that about 70% of, of all views come from the recommendation engine. So, but, but back then it was sort of, uh, it was a binary, right? It was like the video is on YouTube. It is making money. It is most likely being recommended to viewers. I think the the breaking point was in early 2017, right after the PewDiePie incident, got a lot of press attention in Europe, which is important to remember, was where there was a lot more regulation uh, and, and threat of regulation. Um, far,
1: far less of a sort of free speech American for culture. For sure,
2: yes. Like in Europe, this sort of uh, libertarian, like free for all, doesn't fly very well. So there was some reporting about the brand issue with these household brands that were were sponsoring very fringe and extremist videos. Uh, a lot of them came out of the Murdoch papers, and there are people at at Google who will tell you privately, like. You know, hey, look—it's Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, who's been our enemy for years. Huh. Like they're out to get us, and 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 still, even to this day, it was this accusation that reporters were blowing up this story, uh, which was fundamentally just going to advertisers and saying, like, here's what you're spending money on. Did you know that? Do you feel comfortable doing that? And here is where you know YouTube is telling you this is just as good as television, and then you talk to advertisers, and 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 they they didn't know how the system worked, right? It was this very l- l- opaque. Still to this day, like the digital advertising world is like incredibly confusing and not transparent. And there was like, a defining moment uh, where it became like this, this YouTube system just not sustainable.
1: Claire, you are best known as one of the organizers of the Google Walkout. But there is this really interesting note in the book that says you might not have gone so far in in vocally protesting Google if you hadn't been at YouTube that that was really key. And I I wonder what exactly you mean. What was it about being adjacent to all of this YouTube drama that pushed you in that direction rather than had you been sort of still a part of main Google?
0: You know, I, I really think that YouTube is the tip of the spear with a lot of these issues in tech of companies wanting to be something and the reality is the Frankenstein that, that Mark describes. Um, and I, my, my role in articulating and promoting the company's values was in such contrast to what, what I saw on the site every day, the way I saw leadership deal with issues related to the health of society and, and, and responsibility and brand safety. Um, and that tension was killing me. I think that you know all all of what was said around that time around um you know the employees of Google revolting was down to this contradiction of we've been sold something around the company's values around its contribution to society around the kind of workplace it has that is not happening in my in my day-to-day life. And so yeah, I think that you know YouTube because there is such an intensity to or, to What's it's a mirror of societal issues, and it like escalates and bottles them up in a, in a way. It contributes to it and it propagates the societal issues. But the YouTube aspect of, of it is a very, very important part of why um, I and many others were so mad. Half of the organizers were were at youtube. It wasn't It wasn't just me, but the disillusionment and the sort of sense of cultural rot at youtube is is definitely real. <laughs>
1: Mark, one of the things I find fascinating both in the book and in conversations you've been having around it is that you call YouTube a social media company. Really? Explain how that's the case. Oh yeah.
2: I mean it's it's both both and. You know, YouTube is everything and and to all people, which is one of its 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 faults, but it's it's also one of its gifts. Like it is it is a streaming service, it is a utility, it is a search platform, the second biggest in the world behind behind Google. Um and it functions for a lot of people like i as a social network, uh, or as a parasocial network is the academic term, right? You have relationships with creators and influencers. Uh, You sort of, in PewDiePie, is a a good example. Like YouTubers are, even when they have a a persona, there's this relationship with the audience that they cultivate, and and it's made in a way that the fans think they know them very intimately when they do not.
1: Why do you think YouTube doesn't attract the same level of political scrutiny that the rest of of big tech
2: does. I'll give you a quick three reasons. One is uh structural like uh, most people uh in, you know in in journalists and politicians in particular um anyone over 40 might use YouTube, oh I learned to to fix my sink. I learned I wa- like I do yoga routines with it, right? I I bake bread or I watch old archival clips. Uh, I do not see my uncle posting weird QAnon memes typically on, Hmm. on, on, in in the same way that you might. The way,
1: the way you'd encounter that on Facebook.
2: Yeah. So I think that that's one. Um, two is, uh, there's, it's covered differently, right? It's like covered by the Google reporter, which is important. And so it's often treated not as social media in part because it's buried under Google and Alphabet. We have less view inside its financials. That's a reason why there's incentives in my industry, at least to cover it less, uh, Third is Google's just a very savvy company um, and has been around for a long time. At one point was spending more than any other corporation on lobbying. Like they are a very effective political actor and I think they are very good uh, at staying out of the limelight. Um, And then Susan Wojcicki is, and this was uh, difficult writing a book, is not a known entity. Like everyone everyone knows Zuck. Um, Most people, Sheryl Sandberg, spent a lot of her career uh, building up her public persona, Jack Dorsey is a, a weirdo that everyone loves or hates. Most people don't know um, who Susan is, and and I think that's actually intentional on the company's part.
1: What do you think, Claire? Why do you think YouTube has been good about kind of flying below the radar? Is that intentional? Is it an accident?
0: No, I think I think it's it's lucky, but also there's some factors at play. I think that you know Google in general. Has managed to position itself as more of a utility. It's something useful. It's not feel bad. I mean, using Google, using YouTube, because it is sort of a passive experience for the most part. I think that there's you know something about Twitter and Facebook that it's like it's just the color red. Um, there's a quote in the book that I think Kim Scott is who's a someone I knew from um, who was in Google HR saying Susan's not charismatic and that actually works to youtube's advantage i think that that's true she's when she speaks it's like white noise like you never really hear what she's saying it's also such a complex company it's doing like a thousand different things it's this constant reshuffle um you know constant just being in a million different pies i don't know it's i think it, it's, in some ways it's offering is less cohesive we can't quite like understand where it fits and that that may be part of it
1: Mark, when you think about the future of YouTube, and and I know you've been thinking sort of like big thoughts in in writing and in now releasing this book, do you think it will still be able to have this lower profile? Like, is anybody in Congress who's been thinking about Section 230 reform, are they paying attention to YouTube? Is YouTube able to just say, Look, man, we're a platform and what people put up there that's on them you know does it does it get to keep this quote unquote neutrality as as it moves forward
2: well i hope it'll attract more attention <laughs> that's the reason i wrote the book there's a website called two filter that's like the billboard for youtube um and it, like, if you go look at the top performing uh youtube videos by just volume they're cocoa melon which we we'll, may you know right like they they're all as for, the yes, as
1: the mother yes. of a toddler, yes i do know cocoa yes. melon yes
2: uh, so but but it is a it is a juggernaut in, in kids media. There have been like multi-million dollar kind of acquisitions and uh I don't I don't see that going away anytime soon. And I think but that is also getting, you know, the California is is looking at a bill around, around with tighter restrictions around privacy for, for um users under 18. Like that's something where like the FTC has taken action. So I think uh and you know TikTok is getting more attention because part because of its Chinese ownership. Um, but that will have a, an effect where everything's going to affect YouTube. Another example is Apple has restricted, um, ads targeting, uh, and it's had this big impact as, as people might know about on Facebook and Facebook has cried about that. YouTube's business has, I I don't know equally, we can't say that definitively, but has been, has been affected. Like Hmm. that is a key part of YouTube's business, right? Was like selling targeted ad on, on iPhones to people watching video. Um, so it is affected. And Apple is out of that business. And Apples, now. yeah, and it, it's it is, but it's another example where YouTube was savvy enough not to talk about it, and the way that they're structured within Google Alphabet, we don't know, um, but it has had impact. And so, uh, so yes and no, I think they'll they'll continue to be impacted, and, and it seems the record has shown um, a lot less scrutiny. One, one thing that has changed. To be fair, another reason why they haven't been scrutinized as much is because they don't share as much data, and video is just harder to analyze as a researcher. Um, it's just much more complicated than text to, as far as moderation or any type of uh, doing analysis. Uh, YouTube has been pressured in, in earlier this summer to start sharing more data uh, with outside researchers. Um, I think that is something that's really important in understanding how this, this big platform works and, and all its uh, ramifications.
1: Claire. What do you want people to understand about YouTube, either from Mark's book or from this interview?
0: I think um it, it's it's really useful to look under the hood at how kind of chaotic and complicated things are at a, a tech company like this because it 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 pushes it back down to you to think about how you and the people around you are engaging with social media. I, I as I was reading through it, was just thinking that like I can't believe I'm letting my kids watch. They don't watch so much YouTube, but just the exposure to potentially very dark places is something that everybody needs to be really responsible and vigilant about on an individual level, because the companies really aren't going to take the action ever that you would like to see as a parent or as an individual who, you know, cares about a democratic society or, you know, a world where we're not, you know, so polarized we're at war or something like that. Um, YouTube can be trusted to, be a part of anything kind of negative or corrosive going on in society from from my point of view. And so it's a good reminder to look at it with a critical distance.
1: Mark Bergen, Claire Stapleton, thank you both very much.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: Mark Bergen is a reporter at Bloomberg News and the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Claire Stapleton writes the newsletter Tech Support about navigating life as a disillusioned tech worker. That is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you become a Slate Plus member. That means you get all the Slate podcasts ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.